So I had my word of greeting to those you've already heard in the precious name of Earth's only Savior, God's only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Kennan is obviously a sterling expositor. He's a very hard engaged pastor, and he's a very rare and exceptional leader. But you know, there are other pastors, there are other leaders, there are other expositors. But when it comes to over introducing somebody, Kennan stands alone. I don't know why he had to drag Prof. Hendricks and Tommy Nelson and Soup into it, though, but just kidding. Um, we're here to study Ephesians 2, and it's kind of a tough assignment because I'm, I was given a very thickly uh, textured passage, verses 11 to 18. And I really have to depend on the Holy Spirit to, to shine a light on, on this passage because we're just going to pick out a few things and we're going to leave a lot of things out because we don't really have time to do everything that we need to do, but we'll do the best that we can. It's a passage that has a lot of um, references to Old Testament realities. I'm going to take a little time to introduce it. It's, it's a passage that, that talks about things that, that even Jews did not understand until Jesus came. And I can't, I can't hope that these Ephesian Gentiles would have caught on, except that Paul was trusting the Holy Spirit to follow up and to make it real over time. There were some great teachers in, in Ephesus. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila spent time there, and Apollos spent time there, and Timothy spent time there. But in the Old, the old Testament, even to, even to pious Jews, even to scholarly Jews, was a bit of a jigsaw puzzle, all jumbled up and, and apparently random and, and unconnected. Think, think of it. You got Melchizedek. Well, where did Melchizedek come from? Well, he was a priest. Well, who ordained him as a priest? How did he find out about God? He was the Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. That's what his name means. Well, how many kings who are kings of cities or, or countries are also kings of righteousness? And he must have been pretty important because Abram encountered him on the way back from the, the War of the Kings, and he refused to take any booty, any, any treasure from the king of Sodom. But he gave his treasure to Melchizedek. He tithed all he had to Melchizedek. He only shows up one more time in the Old Testament, Psalm 110, and then he gets some extended treatment in Hebrews beginning in chapter 5 and going on for a few, verse, a few chapters. Then you've got this shocking situation where Abraham is commanded, Genesis 22, which is the Mount Everest of the Old Testament. You never get any closer to Calvary than that in the Old Testament. And Abraham is commanded to take his son, his only son, the son whom he loves, first use of love in the Bible. Take him there to Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice to me. What father offers his son as a sacrifice? How could God do that? 
Well, of course, he didn't let him go through with it. And we're told that he wanted to test him. Maybe he also wanted him to know what it was like, to feel what it was like to be God. Then you've got that shocking thing that happens in Numbers 21, where the children of Israel, they don't like the manna, they're sick of it, they're longing for the leeks and garlic and fish of Egypt, and they're uh, complaining and murmuring, and God sends a, a plague among them. And they're dying, and they want to repent. And, and so God tells Moses, um, well, here's what you need to do. You need to, to make a, a brazen serpent. Wait a minute. That's a violation of the second commandment. You should make no graven images. And I want you to make it out of a serpent. Wait a minute, the serpent was, the, was cursed. The serpent was the one who brought plagues. How can we look to a serpent to, to lift the plague? And I want you to look to that bronzed serpent for healing. Wait a minute, that's idolatry. If these commands had come from anybody else but God, they would be idolatrous. Now, here's the thing about the puzzle of the Old Testament. When we work puzzles as kids, that flat board, when we're kids, the pieces are big and the board has indentations, so we know the shape of the piece that goes there. And also, we've got a picture of what the thing is supposed to look like when it's finished. We have a target image. When we get older, we don't get the indentations. We just have to figure it out. But we still have the picture. You see, the Old Testament gave us the puzzle pieces, but we didn't have the picture. We, we didn't know what's the target? What are we, what are we aiming at? What, what's, all this tried, what's all this supposed to lead up to? And then when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, remember that? Remember the most famous verse, you know, is in 316. Everybody, it's one of the first verses we learn, for God so loved the world, we know all about that. But what about the verse, two verses before that? John 3, 14, when Jesus says to Nicodemus, just as the serpent had to be lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You see, Nicodemus, that was about me. And then when the target image arrived in three dimensions, all the Old Testament came together. All the, how can Messiah be a pierced one? There's a piercing mentioned in Psalm 22. There's a piercing mentioned in Isaiah 53. There's a piercing mentioned in Zechariah 12. Psalm 22 says, they've pierced my hands and the feet. That chapter, that psalm is about the death of the Messiah. But then Psalm 110, I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. He's also supposed to be exalted. How can he be pierced and exalted? How can he be acclaimed and despised and rejected? How could that possibly be? Because that's what, that's who Jesus is. And that's what happened to Jesus. But before that, how could you possibly fit these puzzle pieces together? And that was, that was the Jews. The Jews had studied the Old Testament all their life. What about the Gentiles? How on earth could they have figured it out? 
Well, Paul is explaining it to them. And with that introduction, we'll take it up in verse 11. We'll go to 18, Ephesians 2, 11 to 18, in honor of God and his word. Why don't we stand up? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh call the circumcision by the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, second time he says that, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself has been made our peace, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, not Gentiles and Jews, but one body of Christ. So making peace and might reconcile us both, us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility which existed before. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And Heavenly Father, we pray that you would show us what it means. We pray that you'd show us why it matters. We pray that you would change us thereby. For we ask it in the name of your glorious Son and our wonderful Savior Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. What the passage is about is three things. what we were, what we have become, and how Jesus made it happen. And, and there's an emphasis on the time sequences. Last week, um, we were cautioned about thinking our, of ourselves as sinners and heaping um, condemnation upon ourselves, as if Jesus had never washed it in his blood, and Jamie did a great job with that. So there's, there's a way that we are supposed to remember the past, and there's a way that we're not supposed to remember the past. We're not supposed to remember the past with some morbid uh, introspre introspection. I'll tell you, the devil flies at me sometimes. It reminds me of stuff that I've said. I want to cut my tongue out. He, 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 he reminds me of things I've, I've done. And, and I have to hold up the cross and tell him to go back to hell because we can't let the regret heap, heap up and, and, and smother us because it will if we don't fly to the cross and, and leave it at the cross. So we don't remember what we were that we might um, drown in in self-accusation and self-condemnation. And speaking of drowning, some of you remember that great phrase. You know, Adrian Rogers had such a gift for gripping and memorable phrasing. I'm trying to kick this mask out of the way. And, and one of his most memorable phrases was this. He said it all the time. He, he talked about our sins 
being drowned in the sea of God's forgetfulness. That's just exquisite. Our sins have been drowned in, in a sea of, of God's forgetfulness. And of course, God can't forget anything, but he wills to forget it because of the blood of his son shed on our behalf. So we remember what we were. Why? For reasons of relief. For reasons um, which inspire gratitude. So we'll be grateful, and so we will praise. And also to know we've been changed. To know that we've been changed. I thought I, I got saved when I was a child. I was baptized when I was eight. My testimony until my mid-40s was I wandered from the Lord in my teen years. I came back to the Lord at age 20. And you know, the older I got, um, that narrative wasn't working for me anymore. And I, be, I began to remember specific sins. I'm not talking about the usual sins of, of, the, of the 60s. My, I was born in 1950, so my teen years just tracked with the 60s. But I'm talking about other sins. Um, Sins that if I mentioned them, I'd, I'd lose even more credibility, so I won't. And, and I realized three things about myself, even though my doctrine was orthodox, and I could sign off on, on all the great evangelical truths, I, I realized that during those days, there was no restraint before sin. There was no regret after sin, and there was no resolve to resist future sin. And I realized a regenerate person cannot live like that. A person who has the Holy Spirit in his heart cannot live like that. And I was living like that. And I realized, man, you didn't come back to Jesus at age 20. You got saved at age 20 because the transformation was radical. I, I became unrecognizable. And that's a, that's a reason for praise and, and gratitude and celebration. So, we, we're remembering not to wallow in, in regret and self-loathing. We're remembering to celebrate the transformation. You see, it's possible to be very adept in the informative advantage of the gospel. The gospel actually explains everything. We could go into that sometime. It explains who we are. It explains what we are. It explains why we went wrong. It explains history. It explains combating ideologies which oppose the gospel. But that's not enough. We, we have to know, we have to feel, we have to be changed by the transformative power of the gospel. And Paul is talking about this. He talks about it in more than one place in the book of Ephesians and, and earlier than our chapter. So, he's, I, I really think, I can't prove this, it's not a scholarly assumption, He's writing to the Gentiles, but he's writing for the Jews. The Gentiles would not have known what he was talking about for a long, long time. They had Priscilla and Aquila, they had Apollos, they had Timothy later, they had Paul, who even rented a, a place there. Boy, I love house churches. I have to tell you this, that, that uh, the most I've felt the presence of the Lord since... 2000 was in a house church meeting in Binghampton in the summer in a dangerous neighborhood. Man, I was afraid to go down there. And, and uh, there was no air conditioning. It was really hot. And the, 
I was teaching and the fan, exhaust fan was running and I thought, man, I wish they could turn that fan off, but we couldn't because we burnt, we burn up. And I was, I was so aware of, of what I thought was the Lord's presence there. And, and, and I love house churches, but some people in house churches fall into the trap and they say, well, you know, we got to only worship this way because that's the way the early church worshiped. No, it's not. First of all, a lot of times it was illegal to worship. They had to hide in houses. I'm going to a place next month that we, we're going to have to hide in a house to worship, God willing. And, and also, they couldn't afford to have a building. But Paul rented a place in Ephesus called the Hall of Tyrannus, and he taught there. So he didn't just teach in the houses. He did teach in the houses, it says in Acts 20, but he didn't exclusively teach in the houses. And so he unloads this mammoth deposit of really complex doctrine. And he references the whole history of Israel, which they knew nothing about. And what he does in this place is he begins to uh, tell them who they were and to tell them what the Jews thought about them. They call you the uncircumcision. Now, one theme that we're going to camp out on uh, toward the end of this, this study in just a few minutes is the theme of how counterintuitive God is. What does that mean? Well, it means that he does the opposite of what he, we expect him to do, and it means that he does the opposite of what we would have done. There are certain theological formulas which work going left to right, but they don't work going right to left. Let me tell you what I mean by that. God is love. Is that true? God is love. Is that true? Not. It is true. It is biblical. That works. God is love. That works. Love is God. Is that true? No, that's not true. Love is not God. God is love. It works going left to right. It doesn't work going right to left. Let me show you another one. We are made in God's image. Is that true? Yes, that is true. That's left to right. God is like us. Is that true? No, that's not true. You see? You have, you have to be careful. God is not like us. He says that in Isaiah 55. He says, you know, I'm not like you. Your, uh, your thoughts are not my thoughts. Just as the heavens are high over the earth, so are my thoughts, my ways over your thoughts and your ways. So, God decides he's going to make a new nation with an original generation. So, I would choose a young couple close by. He, clo he chose a 75-year-old man married to a 65-year-old woman who had never been able to conceive children who lived far away. So it was too late. Too late to have babies. So he chooses them and calls them, and it's too late. So what does he do? He waits. See what I mean by counterintuitive? They're too old to begin with, so what does he do? He waits. He waits till they get a lot older. He doesn't tell them when it's going to be. He just tells them what it's going to be. And then he sends them on a journey westward, 
I'll show you where to go. I'll show you what to do. And then in the fullness of time, first, so so he begins with uh, self-renunciation. And by the way, we never need to condemn ourselves. Self-condemnation should never be a part of a Christian's life. But self-renunciation, every day, every day. Every day we're going to want something that God doesn't want for us. Every day we're going to not want to do something God wants us to do. And we've got to die to self. That's what it means to take up your cross and to follow Jesus. So he says, you know, you're a rich man here. You're an important man here in Mesopotamia, the land between the two rivers, the cradle of civilization. I want you to leave and go to another place where nobody knows you. I want you to renounce everything you've you've been, everything you've done. I want you to get up and get out of here. I'll show you the place. You'll know when you get there. And then a few years later, he requires self-humiliation. Because you see, his name was Abram. Abraham means exalted father. Can you imagine saying, what's your name? My name is exalted father. Well, how many children do you have? Well, I, I don't really have any children. So he said, I want you to change your name. I want you to change your name to Abraham. Abraham means father of a multitude. So see, it gets worse. Now you've got to tell everybody your name is father, father of a multitude. Really? Gosh, how many children do you have? No, I don't have any children. That's humiliating. Then, that relationship that brings children into the world, we have to talk about circumcision. It's in the Bible. It's in the beginning of the text. Then God says, that part of your anatomy, what makes it possible for you to be a father, I want you to mutilate it. I want you to wound it. And for a few days, while you're wounded, while you're recovering, that relationship which enables you to become a father, that's not going to be possible. That's pretty counterintuitive. I mean, in a way, it's a human reason. It's pretty bizarre, isn't it? And not only for you, but for all your descendants who haven't appeared yet, by the way so that they will know that they're a special nation, that they've come into the world not because of the ordinary course of nature, not because of the normal capacities of the flesh, because it, but because it was something I did from the beginning in a context which was impossible. They will always be reminded of that, and they will carry that mark around with them, and that's the right of the covenant in the Old Testament. And that's the way Paul begins. You were uncircumcision, and you were called that by the circumcision. Remember, remember that at that time, and here come the time sequences, the then and the now of our salvation. At that time, we see in verse 12, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. What's a covenant? A covenant is a formalized relationship initiated by God, defined by God, which includes mutual benefits, requirements, requirements, benefits, and responsibilities. So God says, 
I'm going to enter covenant relationship with you, and I'm going to make you these promises. And those promises are going to be fulfilled as your benefits. But you also have certain responsibilities to me. You go where I send you. You do what I tell you. You be who I made you to be. No freelancing. No self-made religion. No strange worship. You're mine and I'm yours. You know, Philip Melanchthon, the great brilliant protege of Martin Luther, after Erasmus died in 1536, Melanchthon knew, knew the Greek New Testament better than any man alive. And here's what he said. He said, the Christian doesn't live on explanations. We want explanations. The Christian lives on promises. And you know, as... as Abram journeyed on as a pilgrim, and his wife's tummy was not swelling, and no little infant life was being formed in her womb. He, he, he asked for clarifications. And every time he asked for clarification, he'd get a promise. He would get an elaboration of the promise, and the promise would be greater. Now, what would you think if somebody borrowed money from you and said, well, I'll pay you back, but he didn't tell you when. And then after some time went by, let's say he borrowed $1,000, and, and you said, well, you know, I did loan you that money. And he says, you know what, I'm going to pay you back $2,000. And more time passes by, and you go to him, and he says, don't worry, I'm going to give you $3,000. And you keep going back to him, and he, he never pays you, but he keeps promising you something more. That's what was going on with Abraham and God. Except God wasn't going to cheat him. God was going to give him more than he ever imagined, but he didn't tell him what time until the last minute. Well, you Gentiles in Ephesus, you don't know anything about that because you were strangers to the covenant, the covenants of promise. He made a covenant with Noah. He made a covenant with Abraham, made a covenant with David. Having no hope and without God in the world, but now, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Why are we afar off? Well, you know what? We wanted to be afar off. Thomas Manton, the great Puritan, said, there are two thing, things which will make us flee from God. The rigors of the commandment and the guilt of conscience. Boy, you don't want to go to a class when you're unprepared. You don't want to see the coach when you didn't do what he told you to do. But we don't want to go into the presence of God if we know we're a transgressor, if we know we're a, a covenant breaker, if we know we've been disobedient. That's a terrifying thing. I used to hate to go to Hebrew class because the professor would go down the row and call on people to uh, translate and to, and to conjugate and to decline announce. I mean, it took me, I was horrible at Hebrew. It took me three semesters to figure out, well, no wonder those letters are going in the opposite direction. Once I figured that out, uh, it helped, but it didn't help that much. The rigors, Manton said, of the commandment, the guilt of conscience that I can't keep the commandments. And so there was an advantage of keeping my distance from God. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, 
you're, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. We're going to end up talking about that almost exclusively. For he himself is, a, is, is our peace. Basically, I think there are about seven things here that Paul said that Jesus did. We're told that, number one, in verse 13, we're brought near by the blood of Christ. We're told that he made us both one, that he's broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Most of the other older commentators have reminded us of that dividing wall in the temple that the Gentiles had to stay on one side of it. And, and Christ broke it down, just like, so there was a division between us and God. There was that veil in the temple. And when Jesus died, the veil was torn, not from the bottom to the top like a man would tear it, but from the top to the bottom like God would tear it. Edersheim, I think this has been exaggeration. Edersheim was the greatest authority on the period, though. He said that it took 200 men to take that veil down and clean it. That's how thick it was. Somebody tore it like tissue paper the moment Christ died, removing the boundary, the barrier between us and God. And now this wall that divides us from each other from Jew and Gentile, has been abolished because of what Jesus did. But really, it wasn't just that room in the temple. He abolished our whole relationship to the law by his fulfillment of the law and by his paying the penalty for the fact that we couldn't keep the law on the cross. He abolished, it says in verse 15, the law of commandments. That's the fourth thing, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. That's the fifth thing. And see, this is what we need to remember. You know, obviously there's a raging controversy over social justice. Is it, are we supposed to emphasize social justice or are we supposed to emphasize preaching the gospel of salvation? Well, let me just say this. It's not either or, it's both and. So if you're, if you're on the, it's only the gospel side, I've probably offended you. So let me say this to offend the people who, say, social justice. Uh, the gospel has to come first. The gospel has to be preeminent. The gospel always has to be in the foreground. Social justice can never overshadow or face the gospel. Let me tell you why. Because Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Let's take care of our neighbor. But what if we do feed him? What if we do clothe him? What if we do house him? What if, he do, what if we do educate him? and he's lost. What good does that do? He goes to hell forever. What good did we do him? We didn't do him any good at all. We just uh, softened his difficulty so that he wasn't desperate enough to cry out to God. That's all we did. But here's the point. Here's why it's connected to the text. We can't, like the priest and the Levite, avert our eyes from those who are wounded and helpless. We have to go help them like the Good Samaritan did. We have to. You know why? Because we're joined to them. Because we've been made one body with them. Because Christ is our head and they're in the body with us. Because Christ is our bridegroom and we are the bride and they're in the bridal party with us. They're also the bride. Because Christ is the builder and we are the building. He's going to talk about that in verses 19 through 22. So we're with them. They are part of, 
of us. They're part of our family. The Jews disdain the Gentiles. Why? You're not in our family. You're not citizens of our country. You don't speak our language. You haven't read our book. You don't worship our God. Well, all those things were true until now, until Christ came and he broke down those barriers. He destroyed the hostility through the cross. Okay, I've got to end this. And let's do this really fast. Here's the overwhelming thing. We are told in this passage that Christ is our peace. That's what it says in verse 14. We have been brought near to God, it says in verse 13, by the blood of Christ. We are told that we've been reconciled to God, verse 16. How? Through the cross. So the peace and the reconciliation comes through the blood of Christ and through the cross. Here's our problem, especially those of us who are Southerners, especially those of us who've been to church for most of our lives. The gospel is so familiar to us that it no longer astounds us. The gospel is so familiar to us that it no longer shocks us. The gospel is so familiar to us that it doesn't grip us how impossible it is. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Around Easter, you're going to hear this. One reason we know the resurrection is true is because if it had been made up, it would be made up differently. They would, those apostles would never say we had to be convinced by the women. They'd never say he appeared to the women first. They'd never make that up if it, weren't, if it weren't true. Two reasons. One is the male ego. The other reason is it's, it wasn't a good apologetic because the testimony of women was not allowed in the Roman Empire because they were considered unreliable. So why make it up if it's not true? It doesn't help. Plus, it humiliates the apostles. There are others. There's so many things. There's so many things that would be different if it had been made up. Think of conspirators saying, now, we're going to tell a lie so that we can fool the Jews. The Jews hated the Gentiles. They hated the Samaritans worse. You know who they hated worse than the Samaritans? The tax collectors. Think of that. So they say, hey, Matthew, you're a tax collector. You've got great credibility. Why don't you write the gospel to the Jews? Isn't that a swell idea? You see how daft that is? You see how impossible that is? You see how foolish it is for a professor with a PhD to teach people that the thing was made up when it's impossible that it be made up? But let me tell you something else. Not only... We don't just say if the gospel was made up, it, was, it would have been made up differently. We go much further than that. What we say is... The gospel could not have been made up because it could not have been imagined. See, we're so familiar with it, we forget that. I'm going to prove right now that the gospel could not have been imagined. Israel was occupied by five successive world powers, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. Let's imagine one of those emperors, Sargon or Sennacherib of Assyria, or Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, or Caesar of Rome. Let's choose Cyrus of Persia, who's called my anointed in Isaiah 45 because he set the Jews free. Let's say Emperor Cyrus called together a council of war 
And his generals sat at a, a big table. And the emperor stood up and said, gentlemen, there's been a rebellion in a distant province of our empire. They murdered our ambassador. They butchered our garrison. They fortified our, their borders. They chased away our representatives. Gentlemen, what are we to do to quell this rebellion? In the back of the room, a commander raises his hand. And the great emperor says, speak, general. And the commander says, I know, sire. Let's send your only son and heir unarmed into the enemy camp where he will be spit upon, mocked, and tortured to death slowly. Then those rebels will know how much we love them. Now, you know if that had happened, you could measure the future life of that general in minutes, not in hours. But you know it never happened. How do you know it never happened? If you don't have a degree in ancient history, why would you bet $1,000 that that never happened? You would, you would make that wager because you know it's not a human thought. It's not a thought that could ever enter into a human brain originally. It's not a strategy which could ever originate on this planet. But it did happen, didn't it? But it wasn't a human plan. It wasn't a strategy which originated on this planet. Oh, no, 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 no. Now, what's this got to do with uh, Ephesians 2? Just this. We are told that we are brought near to God in his fellowship, in his family, by the blood of Christ. That's what it says in verse 13. We are told that he made peace and that we were reconciled by the blood of Christ. That's what it says in verses 15 and 16. That that's actually the reason we were brought near. That's the reason that we were reconciled. Ten years, ten years ago this month, my wife and I stood at the tomb of King Cyrus, the great Persian emperor. We went to Iran for 11 days or something, 12 days. And you know what we were told there? I haven't confirmed this in scholarship. This is what the tour guide said. Cyrus actually loved his wife, one of the few monarchs who was actually monogamous. She died. And he was ratifying a treaty with a conquered people, which had a queen, not a, not a king. And as that treaty was being formalized, Cyrus was alone with the woman. And he thought she was trying to seduce him. And he let his guard down. And she killed him. That's how he died. You know why she killed him? Because her son was captured in battle by Persian forces. And he died in a Persian prison. And she blamed the emperor. So she killed him. Now, friends, that's the way of the world. That's very understandable, isn't it? But remember, Isaiah 55, God is not like us. He's not like us. 
and what he would not require of Abraham, he required of himself. Take now thy son, thine only son, the son whom you love, and offer him up as a sacrifice for me. That's what God did for you. That's the gospel. Christ bled because of our sins and our guilt. It was because of our guilt that he died for us. And it was because of his death for us that God love, can love us. That's the gospel. Believe that and be safe. Be safe now. Reject it and be lost. Perhaps forever. There's no other explanation for this gospel but that it originated in the heart of the God who fashioned your heart. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you let us live until the second week in October 2021. And you let us hear the gospel this morning. Some of us for the tenth time, some of us for the hundredth time. Some of us for the thousandth time. But for any who's heard and resisted, we pray that today they would take your son to be their savior. And we ask it in his own name, who is Christ the Lord. Amen.